0: Today we set sail on what will be at least a year-long journey through Hebrews. And my challenge to you this year is that you soak your mind and your heart in this text. It's only 13 chapters, 303 verses long. So if you were to walk through it at 10 verses a day, you would work through Hebrews once every month this year. You would know it well, and I think your soul will be the better for it as you get into the Word and as you get the Word into you, as Josh encouraged us to do last week. You cannot, brothers and sisters, live by bread alone. I would also encourage you to grab one of these Scripture journals. We have them in the bookstall, or you can grab them at the info desk. Um, I think that they're helpful for jotting down your thoughts as you read through the text each day, as you meditate upon the precious truths of this text, and as the Holy Spirit does His sanctifying work in you through His Word. Now, I have one task this morning. That is to introduce Hebrews. And the problem is that Hebrews in some ways, is like a jigsaw puzzle in a box. From the picture on top, you can see that this is a masterfully composed, Jesus-exalting, God-breathed word of encouragement for believers. But it's as puzzling and as mysterious in some ways as it is beautifully profound in others. And of course, all the things that I think would be helpful for an introduction this morning are the things that are most mysterious. Things like, what kind of writing is this? Is this a letter or a sermon or a tractate or some other thing? Who wrote it? To whom did he or she write? And when was this this thing written. So the form, the author, the recipients, and even the date are some of the mysteries that you face as you begin to explore this lovely New Testament text. So this morning, you're going to do some detective work with me. And even if we can't solve all of the mysteries, I think there is a huge benefit to you and to your own studies to see the evidence for yourself and to weigh it, Uh, especially that internal evidence that's inside the book itself. So, in Hebrews, you have what Sherlock Holmes, my hero of mystery solving, calls a three-pipe problem. You have multiple three-pipe problems. So, I want you to don your deerstalker. And let's follow some clues together. Your first three-pipe problem is the form. What kind of writing is this? Is it a letter or a sermon or some other thing? All your clues come in two categories. You have external clues and you have internal clues. The internal clues are the clues that come from within the text itself. Let's first examine the external clues. In this case, you only have a couple. The first is a Greek manuscript known as P46. And you're beginning to think this sounds more like a lecture than a sermon. Um, So if you're visiting here, just know that this is not a normal sermon. But uh, by the time we get to the theme, I hope to be preaching. Uh, But we do need to understand some of these aspects because um, it'll help us in our study. The first external clue is a Greek manuscript known as P46. This is the oldest known complete collection of Paul's letters. It's dated in the late second century and it includes Hebrews. So it's a very early example of Hebrews being lumped together with other New Testament letters. P-46 is housed here in the United States at the University of Michigan and a portion of it is in Ireland. P-46 is a clue and I mention it because it comes up a couple of more times. But it's certainly not the smoking gun. It's simply Paul's letters and it happens to include Hebrews. So at least some in the early church considered Hebrews to be a letter. Your second external clue though might be a little more convincing. It's a sermon preached by the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 13. Paul and his traveling companions are in Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, the text says, they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. Paul then preaches a sermon that runs through the end of verse 41. And as you read his sermon, you'll notice some remarkable similarities with Hebrews. But pay attention to that phrase that the rulers of the synagogues used. They asked Paul if he had any word of encouragement for the people. And a word of encouragement appears to be a special term for describing a sermon, a kind of sermon. So keep that in mind as you turn your magnifying glass now to the internal clues. These are the clues found inside Hebrews itself. Look at Hebrews chapter 13, verse 22. I appeal to you, brothers. Now, now notice what he calls this thing that he wrote. I appeal to you, brothers. Bear with my word of exhortation. For I have written to you briefly. Is it possible to get the text up as well? Thanks. Thanks. The word of exhortation. I want you to take note of that language. That's the exact same word that was used in Acts to describe Paul's sermon. It is a word of encouragement or a word of exhortation, and that is the same word in the Greek, just translated two different ways. So, the author himself calls what he wrote here a word of exhortation. A word of exhortation is a word of encouragement. So, is Hebrews a letter or a sermon? Well, based on that, you might be tempted to, toward calling it a sermon. But wait, there's more. Your next internal clue is that the author seems to be writing as if to friends, people who are not only known to him but that were her, who were his friends. We'll list the clues quickly. Hebrews six nine, he calls his readers beloved. In the next verse, he mentions his readers' generosity, their work, their love, and their service toward other believers. In chapter 10, verse 32, and chapter 12, verse 4, he calls to mind the trials of his beloved readers. In chapter 13, verse 19, he says that he is eager to be with them again. And in thirteen twenty-three, he mentions a mutual friend of theirs, our brother Timothy. So these social features in the letter give Hebrews a tone that's more like a personal letter than a formal sermon. Now here's your next internal clue. The author of Hebrews frequently uses we, us, and our. He does that about 99 times in these 13 chapters, at least in English and the ESV. It's about 99 times. And again, that's what you would expect if he was writing a personal letter. You wouldn't expect that so much in a sermon. And your final internal clue cuts both ways. So you should be weighing all of the evidence that you have now and come up with some conclusion. If this is a letter, it is very difficult to explain why there's no introductory greeting. When you read any of Paul's letters, how does he begin? He always begins with a greeting like Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. That's the way letters begin, even in the first century. But Hebrews simply begins by launching into what looks like a formal discourse or a sermon. But before you settle on this being a sermon you need to flip to the last page of Hebrews and take a look at chapter 13, verses 22 through 25. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I've written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. Now, that's exactly the kind of greetings that you would expect if this was a letter, not a sermon. So what is it? Is Hebrews a letter that somehow lost its opening greeting? Or is it a sermon that somehow got a closing greeting tacked onto it? The clues don't really give us a clear answer. At the end of the day, it might not be absolutely critical to know exactly what kind of writing this is but it is important to keep the kind of writing in view as you study this text but now you're all working with the same clues that i am and i can honestly say that i simply don't know i see elements of both a letter a personal letter and that of a sermon here so i'm inclined to think that it's intentionally a mixed document. Some scholars call it a sermonic letter. I don't even know what that is, but a sermonic letter. Um, But however you piece these clues together, you do need to keep the form of this text in mind as you study. But for ease of teaching and preaching, and so I don't have to say sermonic letter every time, I'm just gonna call it a letter because that's what it's been known as. The letter to the Hebrews, even if that doesn't do justice to what this really is. That's three-pipe problem number one, the form of Hebrews. Now, three-pipe problem number two, who wrote it? If you're using an old copy of the King James Version, you might be wondering why I'm even asking the question, um, because it says right there who wrote it. It's the Apostle Paul, right? Right? Well, maybe, let's follow the clues. Unfortunately, the list of suspects is long. One source claims no less than 19 options have been put forward in an attempt to identify the author of Hebrews. And we don't have enough time to go through all of those. Um, I hear a sigh of relief. Uh, But because the list is so interesting, I will put them up on the screen. They're listed here in chronological order of when they were suggested by writers and scholars. As early as 150 uh, AD, the early church father, Tertullian, thought that Barnabas was the author. By AD 155, Clement of Alexandria thought it was the Apostle Paul. Jumping forward in time to 1260, Thomas Aquinas said it was Luke. By 1522, Martin Luther, in a sermon that he preached on Hebrews 1, he argued that it was Apollos. And then as recently as 1976, a scholar argued that it was actually written by Mary, the mother of Jesus. So it should be clear, the scholars have no clue. But let's just examine two of our suspects, Paul and Apollos. First, though, let's eliminate a couple of those suspects. Let's ask this, was the writer a man or a woman? Because as you saw, see on the list, at least two women have been named as potential authors. Um, externally, I'm aware of no ancient clue that indicates that the author was a woman. The idea that Priscilla wrote it has no early witnesses. In fact, it wasn't until 1900 that that was put forward as a possibility. Internally, though, there is a solid clue. Look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. Chapter 11, verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me, and you can mark that word me, for time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, etc. This verse is one of the personal references the author puts in his sermon, or this letter, Um, The pronoun me is singular, and it's used here in the masculine, which is a very convincing clue that the author, whoever he was, was a he and not a she. So that eliminates a couple of our suspects, but let's look at Paul and Apollos. Your external clues, again, are few. For Paul, your first clue is P46 again. Remember, that's the oldest Greek manuscript that includes a complete collection of Paul's letters, letters known to be written by Paul, and it includes Hebrews. The argument is that since P46 includes Hebrews, um, this is an early clue that Paul may have been the author. That's possible. As for Apollos, we have no writings of his that we know of at least, so P46 doesn't help us. That's an external clue. Your next clue is the fact that there are no early witnesses to Paul or to Apollos being the author of Hebrews. The earliest witness for Paul is Pantanus. Now, Pantanus was a Stoic philosopher from Alexandria who converted to Christianity. He claimed His claim that Paul wrote Hebrews would have been around the same time that P46 was being compiled, and so it's not that early. Now, there are no earlier external witnesses that I'm aware of. Apollos, of of course, wasn't even considered until the 1500s. However, even though there are no earlier witnesses than that, uh, than that of uh, Peneus, it is true that the Eastern Church accepted Paul as the author. And some significant early church fathers, the likes of Athanasius, Cyril of Jerusalem and Cyril of Alexandria all agreed that Paul wrote Hebrews. Um, But they all lived at least 100 years after P46 was compiled. So uh, it's an important clue, though, uh, because the Eastern Church on the whole agreed that Paul wrote it. So those are your clues, and I'm sure that you are looking very, very confused about who wrote it, and that's right. The external clues are not entirely convincing. Now, what about the internal clues? Clue number one. Again, we have that missing greeting at the beginning of the letter. And scholars use that fact to argue against Paul because, as you know, all of Paul's letters, um, at least those that are known to be written by him, include the opening greeting. Those who insist that Paul wrote it have to assume that either the greeting was lost somehow or that Paul had a special reason for not adding his name to the letter. That earliest witness that I mentioned, Panaeus, he argued that and he argued it like this. He said that since Jesus was sent to the Jews, that is to the Hebrews, Paul, on account of his modesty and out of respect for the Lord, didn't want his name on this letter. That's the way that he argued it. I think that might be a weak clue, but it's possible, so you can add it to your list of clues. For Apollos, though, the missing greeting has no real bearing since we have no letters of his to compare. And now the t- clues get tricky. What about the quality of Greek, the style of writing, the voca- and the vocabulary of Hebrews? Well, I will spare you those tedious details since I've given you plenty of others, and I'm happy to point you to the sources if you're interested. Uh, Scholars have made list after list of words, phrases, concepts, imagery, and stylistic features of Paul's known letters, and then they compare it with Hebrews. The vast majority say that it is unlikely that Paul is the author. There are a few, though, Uh, who still argue in favor of him. And what about Apollos? Well, again, we have no writings of his, but what we do know about Apollos is interesting. And some of you may have heard um, arguments for Apollos because, of course, Martin Luther is the one who raised the idea. Apollos was a Jew. We see that in Acts 18. And we know that the author of Hebrews was likely a Jew as well. He had a clear... uh, an in-depth knowledge of Judaism and the Old Testament. So what we can say, safely say is that Hebrews was written by a man like that. Uh, but of course, the same could be said about Paul. Uh, he was a Jew and had a thorough understanding of the Old Testament. But Apollos is also described as eloquent and competent in the Scriptures. Again, that is what we see in Hebrews. Um, Hebrews was obviously written by a man, like that, but Paul also might fit that description as well. The third clue is the author's focus in Hebrews on the high priestly work of Jesus. And nowhere in Paul's known letters do you find as strong of an emphasis on the royal high, high priesthood of Jesus as we do in Hebrews. It's not absent in Paul, but it's certainly not what Paul emphasizes. So to some, um, that's a clue that Paul uh, didn't or wasn't the author of Hebrews. As for Apollos, again, we don't really know because we don't know what he emphasized in his teachings. Another internal clue is that reference that you saw earlier to Timothy at the end of this letter. Hebrews 13, 23, you should know that our brother Timothy has been released with whom you shall see if he comes. Now, because Timothy is known to be Paul's protege, some say that this reference is a clue that Paul wrote the letter. If so, it's a paper-thin clue because uh, certainly Timothy was close to Paul, but he was close to a a lot of other believers in the early church as well. Um, In fact, you should note that Apollos was also close with Timothy, and you can see that for yourself in 1 Corinthians 16. So... Your last internal clue comes from Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3. It says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. And that sort of fits with what we know about Apollos. In Acts 18, you see that Priscilla and Aquila took Apollos aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Uh, Paul, on the other hand, never talks that way. Paul repeatedly points to the fact that he was a first hand witness of the risen Jesus and that he received his revelation directly from Jesus. And it's that clue alone that makes me think that it is unlikely that Paul is the author of Hebrews. So those are your clues for Paul and against Paul and for Apollos and against him. I think it's safe to say that whoever the author of Hebrews was, he was a man who ran in the same circle as both Paul and Apollos, but I don't know who he is. So I'm just gonna call him the author, the author of Hebrews. What might be the final word on this mystery is what the early church father Origen said Origen lived um, from about a.d. 185 to 254 and he said who wrote this epistle in truth only god knows and i think that holds accurate um, 1800 years later so much for three pipe three pipe problem number two here's number three To whom did the author write? And this should go a lot lot faster. You have three external clues, and we'll go through them quickly. First, you have P46 again. In this early collection of Paul's letters, Hebrews is given the title to the Hebrews. That became the traditional title of the letter, and P46 is the earliest example of that. Around the same time as P46, Pantaneus claimed that the letter was written to Jews. And Tertullian, the early church father, made the same claim. Now, the internal clues, though, are more helpful to you. Clue number one. When the author calls those to whom he writes, what does he call them? Well, he calls them brothers. He does that at least six times. He calls them holy. This is clue number two. He calls them holy or sanctified. He does that six times. So it's safe to say that Hebrews was primarily written to believers. But add to that, clue number three the things that the author expected his hearers or his readers to be familiar with. He assumed that his readers knew who the Jewish fathers were, that they knew about the Jewish wandering in the wilderness, they knew about the Levitical priesthood, the temple, and Old Covenant sacrifices. He assumed that they knew things like angels mediating the law of Moses as well as the ceremonies about food and purification. And that gives you the sense that this letter is written not only to believers, but to believing Jews, Jews who had converted to Christianity. However, there are a few references that might indicate that Gentiles were also present. And Josh and I will point those out as we preach through this letter now. Our final, we've solved nothing up to this point. So we've got one more three pipe problem and it is the date. When is this, when was this letter written? And you can pin all of these clues on a timeline if you like. The first clue is external. Clement of Rome, he was a very early church father. He was born around the time of the crucifixion and he died in 1899. So we've got a first century Uh, witness here. Around AD 96, just a few years before Clement died, he wrote a letter that's named after him. It's the first epistle of Clement to the Corinthians. In his letter, Clement quotes the letter of Hebrews 18 times. What that tells you with good confidence is that by AD 96, this letter was written, received, and in use by the early church. The rest of your clues are internal, here they are. It's clear in the text of Hebrews itself, and this is an easy one, that the earthly ministry of Jesus is finished. He writes, after making purification for sins, that's the cross, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's his ascension. So the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus happened around AD 33, So you can be sure that Hebrews was written sometime after that. So between AD 33 and AD 96. Let's try to narrow it down a little bit more. The author of Hebrews also mentions that those he was writing to had experienced times of testing, trial, suffering, and even persecution. And there were at least three historical events that could explain that. The first is AD 49. The Roman Emperor Claudius expels Jews from Rome. Luke actually mentions this historical event in Acts 18. In AD, uh, from AD 64 to 69, Nero persecuted Christians, blaming them for the great fire of Rome. And then in AD 70, we have the destruction of Jerusalem after the first of the Jewish wars. And I think that the destruction of Jerusalem being noticeably absent from this letter is significant. Um, It's curious because the destruction of the temple in particular would have helped the author here prove his point about the old covenant becoming obsolete, especially in chapter 8, verse 13, where he says that what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. It would have been very easy for him to mention um, the fact that the temple is actually destroyed at this point. But he doesn't, um, which makes me think that we can date it, this letter before AD 70. So when was it written? It's really difficult to tell, but the, but it is reasonable to say that it was written in the mid to late 60s. And, of course, it may have been even earlier than that. So there you go. Those are your clues to the form, the author, the recipient, and the dating of Hebrews, and those are the most puzzling aspects that we're going to deal with this morning. So we can put our detective work behind us, and you can let me close by introducing the beautiful overarching theme of Hebrews. I want to whet your appetite for digging into this book this year, and this is my best attempt in broad strokes to tell you what this letter, this sermonic letter, is about. In broad strokes, the author of Hebrews is speaking a word of encouragement to believers who are being tried and tested and who have suffered persecution. The author grounds his encouragement to these believers in two grand realities. The first reality is that Jesus is superior. What God unveiled through Jesus in these last days is superior to all that he unveiled through the prophets long ago. Jesus is superior to angels, Hebrews 1. Jesus is superior to Moses, Hebrews 3. Jesus promises a superior rest than Joshua could promise, Hebrews 3 and 4. Jesus is superior to Aaron and all other high priests that are merely human, Hebrews 4 through 7. His new covenant is superior to the old, Hebrews 8 through 10. And the sacrifice of Jesus is superior to the sacrifice of bulls and goats, Hebrews 9 and 10. Jesus is simply superior in every respect. Therefore, reality number two, Jesus is sufficient. Since Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, His work is finished. That's Hebrews thirteen eight, and it might well be the key verse for this letter. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let those words sink into your heart. The revelation of Jesus is superior, completely sufficient, and it is forever. Therefore, it is final, and there will never be a need for further revelation. And if that's true, then we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away like a boat that slipped its anchor, Hebrews 2. The work of Jesus as your high priest is superior, completely sufficient, and lasts forever. Therefore, there will never be the need for another high priest. The sacrifice of Jesus for your sins is superior, completely sufficient, and lasts forever. Therefore, there will never be need for another sacrifice. Because after making purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The blood of Jesus is superior to that of bulls and goats. Completely sufficient to save you from your sin. And it remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. Therefore, there is nowhere else for you to turn To be freed from the penalty and from the power of your sin. But to the superior and sufficient blood of Jesus. The entrance of Jesus into the holy place is once for all. It is superior to all human priests who have gone before him. Therefore, what Jesus did is completely sufficient and it lasts forever. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood and thus securing an eternal redemption. Yes, his work of redemption is also eternal. It is superior and infinitely sufficient to redeem your soul. So yes, brothers and sisters, those are the two grand realities that are meant to encourage you in your times of trial and testing and even in times of persecution just like this letter was intended for the original readers Jesus is superior and infinitely sufficient he is the same yesterday today and forever and this word of encouragement is grounded upon those truths they are the ocean in which we will swim in the coming days. Let's pray together. Father, there's been so much, uh, so many details. But Father, we want, we want to be very clear that your son Jesus is superior in every way. He is superior and He is sufficient. So, Father, as we live out our days this week and in the coming month and this new year, Father, I pray that we would receive a word of encouragement from knowing that He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Father, I pray that that truth would be pressed upon our minds and upon our hearts as we endeavor to understand the words of this letter. Father, I pray that it would be a word of encouragement to my brothers and sisters this morning. And I ask this in the name of your son, Jesus, and for his glory, amen.